Judges chapter 2. Oh, I didn't even say this yet. The Lord be with you. Judges chapter 2. Verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. Stop. Chapter 3. Now you know how I am. I'm going to scoot right up to the end of chapter 2. Verse 22. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. Don't worry, I'll give a little context here in just a smidge. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. These are the nations, the Philistines, those living under the five Philistine rulers, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon, from Mount Baal uh, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. These people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands that the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God, and they served the images of the Baal and Asherah poles, and then the Lord burned with anger against Israel. And he turned them over to the king Cushan-Rishathaim of Aram-Naharim. And Israel... And the Israelites served Cush, you got him, you know him, you know what he's talking about, it's Cush. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them, and his name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against the king, Cush guy, of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him, so there was peace in the land. Go ahead and say, peace in the land for 40 years. And then he died. That's a great way to end every story. Or as Gabriel said, and everyone lived happily ever after until they got old, sick, unhappy, and died. Um, so I've just read a real tiny chunk of Judges, and there may be something you've noticed if you've ever read the book of Judges is that there is a lot of cyclical activity, right? There are cycles that repeat themselves over and over. And here's the cycle. They intermarry or they interact and they learn the ways of their pagan neighbors and then they forget the Lord and they do evil and then it angers the Lord and so they experience consequences of their sinful actions until it gets so bad that in their suffering they cry out to the Lord and then the Lord hears their cry and remembers his covenant and raises up a deliverer whom he pours out his spirit on them and they deliver Israel and then usually until that deliverer dies they experience the restoration of shalom. It's called the judge's cycle. And then that guy dies or that woman dies and then the, says that they forgot the Lord again and we repeat and over and over it goes. Yep. 
the judges cycle. But there is something I noticed this time reading through Judges that caught my attention, and it is that God intentionally left enemies in the land. Why would you do that, God? Have you, have you ever thought about sometimes this is the type in the shadow looking forward to realities that are ongoing in Christ? It's like, okay, we've come into the promised land. Why do I have to face this problem? I think it's so, like, I don't know if you've thought about this from a parenting standpoint. There's a, a certain parenting strategy, kind, kind of like helicopter hovering parenting, where the parent is always rushing ahead. You, you remember, what's that Canadian game with the piece of stone and you push this curling and then the one guy's like "Ah, ah," and then the other person's oh my goodness brushing to make sure that the path is just perfect we gotta get it going and they're yelling at each other and like they and i'm like they hate each other i'm trying you do it and what are they doing what are they the one person is just brushing like crazy and i'm going it looks like they're not doing anything but it must be doing something did you, ever, did you ever see that game and think to yourself, oh, that's, some people's how, that's how some people parent. Yes. They are killing themselves to make sure that nothing will get in the way or touch or bump into my precious. And God's like putting rocks in the path. And I'm going to leave four enemy peoples in the land. Let's just read it again. I did this to test Israel. Okay, so there's different purposes here. I did this to test Israel to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. And then he says a little bit later, these people, verse 4 of chapter 3, these people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands that the Lord had given them. Or earlier... To teach them, to teach a generation war. Apparently, apparently, God's intention is not to provide this paradise situation, but rather to train his to train God's people how to choose Him, how to remember Him, and how to. To, to resist temptation, how to choose him in the presence of other attractive options. That, that's his goal. His goal is not to remove those attractive options from the land, but to train his people how to war. Let me put it another way. His goal is to build strength into his people not remove threats from the environment because his goal, like, like, like David prays in, in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my, of my enemies. His goal is that in the midst of highly threatening, imperfect, and hostile circumstances, I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing nourishment 
and this isn't ruining my meal. This hasn't given me indigestion so that, so that the meal's not a delight anymore. His goal is that we thrive in the presence of our enemies. His goal is that we learn how to fight with the weapons of our warfare, which are not swords and clubs and guns, but our faith, our prayers, our surrender, our perspective. How are we tracking so far? I'm really interested in the, the factors that enable us to live well. Like I, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by what trips people up and what doesn't trip people up. You know? And this last week, I came across a new little, little phrase that I instantly said, oh man, that is, that, is, that is fantastic. And it's this little uh, dichotomy, um, a dialectic, that's the word I'm looking for. It's a little dialectic, which basically means a way of cutting things in half and seeing their opposites. And it talks about someone with an internal locus of control. I said this recently, and somebody said, a locust of control? And I was like, no, not a locust. That's like a huge grasshopper. It's not what I'm talking about. Locus. It's where, the, where, the, where you in your life think control is centered. What determines my life? An internal locus of control or an external locus of control? Someone with an external locus of control believes everything in their life is determined by forces external to them. They feel powerless. And the more you have an external locus of control in every area of, of your life, you won't take steps to dramatically improve your life because you don't believe it's possible. But a person with a radical internal locus of control has a lot more resilience. Let me give you an example. The questions, I took a test online. You, I could send it to you guys afterward if you're interested. I took a test online and it was asking me funny things. It was like, does your vote count? Does voting make a difference? Does political involvement change things at all? In relationships, true or false, people either like you or they don't, and there's nothing you can do about it. In a job interview, where you're from, what name you have, and so forth, affects things more than your capacity to interview well and improve yourself. It, it just on and on it went. From, from way out here, all the way into, can you break addictions or not? Can you learn new skills? And, it was, and, and, and so I'm answering the questions going, I don't like some of these questions. Because intuitively I was aware that I don't have near near the overcoming spirit I thought I had. And so you get giants that come back before the, way before this account, the generation before this account, with, when they're just entering the land, Moses isn't dead yet. And of course you have the ten spies that see the giants in the land and they say, dude, we're going to die. And then you got Joshua and Caleb who say, what are y'all talking about? We can take them. I think it's so interesting. And a person who, when you ask them how they got where they are in their misery, whose story is all that other people did or said, or all that they didn't have, or how they were disadvantaged, when the, when the responsibility is, bl when is blaming everyone else Instead of strategically problem-solving, how can I move forward from here? 
we realize, oh, I have an external locus of control. I don't have an internal one. And you go, oh, well, this sounds like believe in yourself. I saw a T-shirt this week that said, maybe it was last week. Let's see. I got a picture of it in my phone. It's the dumbest. It says, I am everything I need. I had to take a picture and send it to my dad and say, idiots. I'm everything I need. Well, no, you have an incredible capacity for self-deception and rationalization and selfishness in the name of doing, you know, you are not aware of yourself. So, but they're aiming for something, aren't they? I'm every, what are they trying to say? It's like a, a, a cheap hallmark version of trying to say, uh, I can affect outcomes. I can't take responsibility for my life. I'm capable of more than I might think I am. So they're trying. It's a, it's a, it's a, an effort was made. That's what I would... You know, an effort was made. But it's not yet at a place called faith. Right? You keep reading in, in Judges, and you get to Judges 6, and you got Gideon down in a wine press, and he's terrified, and God says, Lord is with you, mighty, mighty warrior. Go save your people from the Midianites. And he's like, uh, I think you're at the wrong house, bro. He goes, no, it's you, it's Gideon, the sword of the Lord. And he's like, sword of the what? I, my family's idiots, and I'm a, I'm a runt. I'm the runtiest idiot in a family of idiots. Are you at the wrong house, fool? And then the answer comes, not, you are everything you need. No, the answer is, I am with you. I am with you. See, the reason that God has left enemies in the land, the reason that God has let difficulties in our lives, the reason that God's not trying to prepare the path for the child, but trying to prepare the child for the path, is because he wants us to learn how to depend on him and see things from a different perspective so that, so that it's not that we have pride. It's that we have faith. It's not, so that we, it's not so that we grow up into a puffed up something, but it's so that we, we grow up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. It's not so that we drill down into our own resources and say, look at my greatness, I did that. But so that we can turn and stand after we've done what we know we can't do and say, look what the Lord has done. And I love David. I mean, you know, he, he sounds pretty braggadocious when he says things like, look what I just did right there with the help of the Lord. Oh, that little detail matters. With the Lord, I can scale a wall. You know, how do you kill lions, bears, and giants? How do you rout enemy armies? How do you sit down in total peace and eat your meal with the enemy at the gates? That's, how, that's the kind of... Mind, there's a mindset shift. There are resources in our relationship with him that we can't, they don't, they don't just come because some person lays there. I mean, I'm not, you know me, guys. I'm, sometimes I'm the first one at the altar when, lay your hands on me, I want what you got. You know, like we went to that Bethel concert and Kaylee Halligenthal, she's an honorary uh, Old Testament character, Difficult to pronounce her name, too. <laughs> but her freedom, and she was dancing and spinning and flipping and her, her, her prophetic stuff. And uh, 
it was just good, clean fun for the kids. I just wanted to walk up to her and say, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. Can you put your little hand on my forehead and pray for me? And she'd be like, what in the world, dude? I'm 25 and you're 40. What are you? 40-something. You look at you. And I'd be like, just the same. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. I want what you got. Put your hand on my head. But the reality is, God will transfer an anointing through the laying on of hands. But you know what he can't transfer through the laying on of hands? Character. And it's Romans 5.3. Character is what produces hope. And where does that character come from? Back the verse up in your mind. We don't just rejoice in our sufferings. Sorry, we don't just rejoice in the great gospel. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces uh, perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because we flopping on the ground in a Holy Spirit encounter with love. That part was a little, a little tweaked. God's love's been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. There's something about a person who's gone through the process and has learned, has learned how to fight those, those enemies God left in the land for that purpose, who in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the presence of the enemy, is having a feast. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you read your past journals? It was always this hard. Well, not maybe always this hard, but it was always hard. Have you read your journals? There's always, there's always some challenge. There's always some threat. There's always some stress. There's always some work. There's always some insecurity. There's always uncertainty. You read your journals. I don't like reading mine for that reason. It's like, dude, what? I do like noticing the changes in my journals. It's gone from self-defeating moping in the name of being honest to actual problem solving. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it isn't hard. And so, <laughs> it was even hard when you was a baby. See what I'm saying? You wanted milk, she wouldn't give it. It was so frustrating. <laughs> I don't really know where this, like, I don't, I don't really know how to, how to apply this to every single one of us, but I know there are enemies that God has called you to stand and face and learn how to thrive in the midst of them. The, the goal is always to be able to keep choosing him. And, and what's the first step in choosing him? You can't choose what you don't remember. Oh, and the generation came. It did not, the NLT says, acknowledge. Maybe another one will say, no. But this thing of forgetting the Lord. You know, sometimes we look at sin, it's like, sin is rebellion. No, sin is betrayal. And betrayal is not the same as rebellion. But betrayals can be taken by small steps until they make good sense to the one making them. Because my reason is always in service of my motive. I can make sense of what I'm doing. Like People don't do, usually, unless they're psychotic, they don't do the wrong thing for the wrong, like knowing it's the, how do I say this? How, give me words. People have good reasons for doing the wrong thing, and it makes sense to their hearts. They're not like, I want to be evil today, that's my plan. 
I'm going to rob this bank because I'm like, whatever. We... So sin against the Lord or each other or yourself makes sense to you when you do it because you wouldn't have done it if it didn't make sense to you, which is the whole point of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And Hebrews says, take care lest any of y'all, meaning take care of each other, take care, be diligent and alert, lest any of y'all be, what does it say? Do you even know the verse I'm quoting yet? Take care lest any of y'all be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Oh, so sin is deceitful. It doesn't come up and say, hey, uh, this is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt everyone you love. It's going to offend and displease the Lord. And I think you should do it. That would be a really bad job being deceptive, right? No, it makes sense. Eve looks at the fruit and says, oh, it's attractive, it smells good, it looks like it's going to taste good, and it's going to be advantageous to acquiring wisdom. So she takes and eats and convinces Adam the same. So I don't have this picture of us humans as being like willfully, repugnantly, outlandishly like fist to the Lord and fist to goodness. No, 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 we've been, we've been lured in by deception to take a path that we didn't realize was so destructive. And the Lord would have us learn how to navigate that challenge and, and remember him and stay connected to him and learn how to draw on him in such a way that our perspective stays renewed even in a toxic environment. And actually, we're called to be the ones on offense transforming the environment. Because it says, he didn't leave the enemies in the land so they'd always be in the land. He said he left the enemies in the land so his people would learn warfare to take the land. Internal locus of control. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I may be in prison, but the gospel's not chained, and I'm going to grab a pen and write. And I'm not saying that in prison, just because Paul had joy, he wasn't also feeling pain. If you read his letters, you're like, whew, that one stung, for Demas has deserted me because he's in love with the world. And I'm Demas reading that letter going, ah, I don't think I'm going to memorize and meditate on that particular Bible verse. It's not that Paul's not in pain. It's not that Paul's denying what he's experiencing. Is that he's drilling down into his relationship with Father. And he's finding solutions to problems he can fix because he can't fix the Demas situation. Only Demas can. But what can I do? I still have a pen. I still have prayers. I still, I still have a way to communicate. Ah, here's some soldiers. We're going to get them saved. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, like it's like, well, since I'm in prison, most of the guards have, <laughs> have had the gospel inflicted on them since they're required and can't leave. Captive audience, what do you do if you're a teacher and you've got a captive audience? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, look, more, more, more students. Hey, we didn't sign up for this. <laughs> well, go ahead and leave then. We're not allowed to.
So that shift from I am a victim, victim of the government, victim of I was born at the wrong time, victim of they had more chances than me, victim of my psychology, victim of my genetics and my personality, victim of, well, I just can't change their minds, so I guess I'll just accept it. One of, the, one of the questions on the test, you know, measuring internal or external locus of control, one of the questions that I don't believe I probably answered correctly was, I take the doctor's recommended assessments for the age group I am in. <laughs> As opposed to, well, I died of smoking and cancer. My grandma, or my grandma and my, my mama and my daddy both died. This is what a guy told me once at the gas station. I said, you really ought to quit that. I'm selling him cigarettes as I'm saying this to him. You really ought to quit that. That's extremely unhealthy. I would also discourage them from wasting their money on lottery tickets as I sold them those. You're really blowing a lot of your Friday paycheck on these tickets. Like, what are you doing? You know, the boss never actually came and talked to me and said, what are you doing? Like, you're trying to... I'm like, I care about people. <laughs> so a lot of layers of complicity in there. And, and the guy said to me, he's like, my grandma, grandma died of lung cancer, and mom and dad both died of cancer, and I'm going to die of lung cancer. It's destiny. It's fate. How do I say this the right way? Destiny isn't fixed. Destiny, you can miss your destiny. Why do we grieve so much? See, I'm just about to cry even saying the example and not even naming any names. Why do we cry so much at the, at the death of an infant or a child? They didn't fulfill their destiny fully. They might have been part. What we're saying is that wasn't, that wasn't what God wanted. That's wrong. And one day Jesus will set it right But we're not going to pretend it's right in the name of destiny. Mess our own hearts up as a way of trying to comfort ourselves. God needed another angel and all that kind of bull crap. As though humans become angels first off and then secondly as though God wills evil. Oh, he said bull crap. I don't think you can do that. But he's actually good and has intentions for us and they don't always get fulfilled. And they won't get fulfilled because God has a part to play and we have a part to play. Now we are not on our own playing our part. Man, this is about drilling down. How, how do we access, how do we access and cooperate with this this Jesus nature who's in us. He's in us. This is not, I read a book and I apply principles of a dead man who was a great guy and then I kind of emulate his example and it's really meaningful. It's called religion. No, he's in you. He's with you. He's alive. He's giving us his thoughts. He's giving us his motivations when we ask him to, when... There's a way to drill down and find him. There's a way to thrive in the presence of the enemies. There's a way to persevere, not not just at a superficial level of perseverance, but to persevere in such a way that finally this process has taken hold 
to where we're thriving in the presence of the enemies and to where we're taking ground and on offense. It's his intention. It's his goal. He's a good, he's a good parent. He's a good parent. He's not th- by the way, he's not throwing us to the wolves. That's not what that picture is. In fact, you know, there's, he, take him a, he took him a long way around the wilderness because he didn't want the, them straight out of Egypt. I don't know if you remember this detail. He didn't straight out of de- Egypt want them to face wild animals that would kill them and discourage them further. He specifically was guarding them when they were in a fragile state from facing enemies he knew were too great for their faith to handle at the time. But now they're in a land when he's allowing them to face enemies he knows he has equipped them to defeat. And what does the testing of your faith usually do? I remember Brian Connolly saying, whenever our faith is being tested in our mind, it's God who is on trial. So in our mind, it's God who is on trial. In our mind, it's a test of, is he really good? Is he really faithful? Is he really worthy? That's what it feels like from our perspective. But objectively, from God's perspective, our belief system, our heart set, our trust mechanisms are what is really being placed on test, placed on trial. Sometimes the answer is hold on, dig in, don't quit, and cry out to the Lord. That doesn't sound like a hopeful sermon. Hold on, dig in, cry out to the Lord. But guess what? Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Doesn't say they will feel strength immediately, three seconds after the prayer. I don't know that there is a timetable. I don't think there's a formula. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. And I don't think it's helpful when we look around at other people and say, it works that way for them and it's not working this way for me. And then we take that and use that to push into an even bigger external locus of control. It's not fair. I, I don't know if... One of the weird ways I think about the word joy, to me, joy is like spiritual aggression. When I get joyful, I almost get angry and want to put my hand through a wall. But not because I'm angry at the wall, but because I'm being propelled forward. You don't have to relate to that. When John Rittenhouse was here a few years ago, at the end he prayed for me, and joy came into me such that I wanted to go punch through a wall. Because it was like, oh my goodness, God is good and we are going to kick so much butt. Oh my goodness, people are going to get free. Oh my goodness. Kingdom of darkness is going to be pushed back. This is a good God, good gospel, good grace, and it's good to be alive. But when I'm not in joy, when I'm in like despair, not only do I not feel like I could punch through a wall, you know what I feel like? I feel like if you look at me wrong... I'm going to break. Which is another way of me trying to make more vivid to us all that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And to get the joy, we've got to dig down into relationship. I feel like that's enough for today.
That's how they taught me to end sermons in seminary. They're like, just talk, and then when you're done, say, I think we're done. No, that's the opposite of what they said, you know. They said, end with an emotional story, so that even if it's a dog of a sermon, people's emotions about, oh, that's the deepest thing I've ever heard. He's a great preacher. They forget how boring and terrible the whole rest of the sermon was because you told an emotional story at the end. It's a genius trick. Genius. Because at the end of the day, that's what the purpose of a sermon is, to make people think you're a genius. I'm kidding. Go ahead and stand. Prayer team, come forward. And some of us who feel we have maybe prayers in our heart for Gloria, who's returning to Goshen College, uh, let's take some time and lay hands on Gloria as well and, and pray over her. Yeah. Who is on the prayer team today? Well, skedaddle and get up in there. All right, let's pray. Uh, you know, I'm, I never do this. Uh, the, what this is will become obvious in a few seconds. I, I don't usually say, hey, grab the hand of the person next to you. I'm still saying that. Don't grab the hand of the person next to you. That's too awkward. Too much sweat. Put a hand on the shoulder of a person next to you. And uh, I, want you to, <laughs> I want you to pray over them for what we've been talking about. That the can-do gospel would come into them. That the, that the I got God, God is with me. Not I can on my own, but with him, absolutely. I can scale a wall, I can defeat these enemies. I can walk well. I can rise up and fulfill my destiny. Now may the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead fill you with that same power with that same overcoming spirit and give you all kinds of joy and hope as you trust him. Amen. Amen.